nothing good for me, so they're done with him. Because this is what we as the church have given people to latch on to, to hold on to. We have the revealed will, and instead of teaching people who God is, what he desires for their life, and how much he desires to bless them, to encourage them, to correct them, to bring them on the path of righteousness, as much as we have all of this in front of us, we have failed because we give them some stupid health and wealth gospel, which brings nothing but despair. Because as much money as they put in the collection, Good morning. If you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, in chapter 3, today's sermon is called The God the bad, and the ugly. So again, Romans chapter 3. We're going to be going through just verses 1 through 8 and a little bit looking back on some of the ground that we've already covered. So if you follow along, it says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means... For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. So basically just two points this morning to our sermon. Point number one is the validity of Christianity does not depend on its adherence. The validity of Christianity does not depend on its adherence. We can all take a big sigh of relief this morning where we are. This is good news. Very good news. So question, can the Gentiles find God if the Jews are the ones who received the law and the prophets? We already know the answer to that because we've been there already. Chapter 1 covers that. The answer is yes. Because you and I are here this morning, obviously we know that we can uh, know the revealed will of God, even though the Jews are the ones that originally received it. But how can unbelievers, those that have not had contact with the word of God, know the word of God? How can the Gentiles find God without the oracles of God? Well, there are two types of revelation and only two we talk about this in theology classes and um, sometimes it's mentioned in sunday school classes two types of revelation what are they well number one is general revelation general revelation what does that mean general revelation is the evidence of god's existence as revealed in creation and conscience You have to have both of these because they both exist. You have to understand your theological framework of general revelation in light of these two truths. His existence as revealed in creation and conscience 
You say, well, where did you get that from? Well, if you remember back to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Notice a few things we need to point out here. God has shown it to them. Shown what? What can be known about God? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning, ever since the creation of the world. So we see right there, within creation, God's fingerprints are all over everything. It is undeniable. Understand this, friends. The atheists, those that say they do not believe in God, are lying. They have put themselves in a position where they think they can believe there is no God, but they need to force the truth out of themselves that already exists. They need to force the truth that is naturally within creation far away from them so they can identify with others that say there is no God. Because they look at the stars. They look at the ocean waves. They look at a child laughing. They look at a loved one passing. They look at the beauty of a moment. They hear an orchestra. They see the, the natural laws that exist and are, are consistent throughout all of creation. Laws like gravity and, and logic. They see all of these things. All of these things point to a creator. The fact that you and I live in an ordered world in an ordered not only an ordered world but an ordered universe the fact that we are exactly how far we need to be on this planet earth away from the sun the fact that we rotate on the axis in order to receive our seasons the fact that we have a 24-hour day so that we can go through the entire cycle all of these things point toward a creator Creation screams God's name, and for us to deny that means we need to figure out a way to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and that's exactly what everyone that says they do not believe in God does. They are fools. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God, because he has to deny the truth that exists all around him. There isn't one molecule that does not scream God's name. There's not one molecule that does not point directly toward the Creator. So, right within creation, understand this there is a general revelation of the existence of God. But don't forget, general revelation is two part. It is not only in creation, it's also in our conscience. You say, Jason, where'd you get that? Well, Romans 2 14 through 16 says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, by nature, that should be underlined there in verse 14 in your Bible, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. 
while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is what's known as our conscience. God has revealed something of himself, not only out in the atmosphere, out in the universe, out in creation, not only in the things we see and the tangible things that we touch, not only is God revealed his eternal power through these things, but also you and I have the law written on our hearts. There are certain things that are universal across all people everywhere. Truths that we need to deny, that we need to force ourselves to deny, even to believe. So you ever wonder why across almost all cultures, certain things are just detestable? Uh, for instance, um, think of, of murder. In most cultures, murder is highly unacceptable. Uh, just the fact when you've done something wrong and you feel it within yourself and you know within yourself and you say, well, Jason, what about cannibalism? What about cultures that murder all the time? Again, these are people that are denying what is in them. They have had to get there over a period of time. They've had to force that stuff out of them. And their conscience is being excuse me, seared. They, they have denied the existence of God that he has written inside of us. Think about this for a second. Think about all the unbelievers out there you know that when they do something or say something to hurt you, they come and try to make that right. Why is that? Because God has given them a conscience. Because they know what right and wrong is instinctively. Because we were made in the image of God, we're volitional beings, we were made with the ability, with free will, to choose right or wrong. We were given this by God. In our own being created beings, created in the image of God, we are volitional. We had the ability to choose between right and wrong because there is right and there is wrong. And we have the ability to choose. And when we choose the wrong thing, God has given us this conscience to bear witness against us. All people have this. The only way that we can possibly deny it is to work at denying it. And this is what these cultures out there that subscribe to things like child sacrifice and cannibalism, this is what they've done. Over a period of time, they have denied these things through worshiping idols and demons, and they have given themselves over to false gods. So let's just think about this for a second. If we have general revelation in one category, this is uh, God's existence being revealed through creation and our conscience, then what's the other type of revelation? Well, it's known as special revelation. Special revelation. You could also call it particular revelation. And this is the revealed will of God. This has come to us through several different means. Uh, long ago, through prophets. Sometimes God spoke to people through dreams. We see that even at times, God uh, uh, spoke and, and directed his will through casting of lots. Again, we don't really have any explanation for why God chose to do things this way. It's because his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. But this is what's known as, as collectively special revelation, where God chooses particularly in a particular way 
to reveal his will or reveal something of himself. So you and I have that in the 66 books of the canon of scripture. We have God's revealed will. We know what he wants and we can also see in his revealed will something of who he is, which is just marvelous. So some here may say, oh, well, I have an objection. I have an objection to this whole idea. The idea that um, God has revealed his will through the Bible. Because doesn't it seem as though those with the oracles of God don't live any different? Someone may say, I, I have an objection. People that have Bibles are horrible people. They don't live any different than the rest of society. That's a good objection. Does this mean that there's no advantage to having special revelation over general revelation? That's the question. Just because Christians don't act the way that God has called them to, does that mean that there's no advantage toward having special revelation over general revelation? Right here at this point, you and I need to do what we rarely, rarely do. We need to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Romans 3, 1 through 2, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Look at what it says here. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This does not mean that the Jews have an advantage regarding justification. We need to all remember this. Just because someone has the scriptures, it doesn't mean they have an advantage regarding justification. It means that they have a clearer understanding of who God is because to them, he has revealed it. So through the scriptures, through the holy scriptures, you and I have a clear understanding or clearer than those that have not received the scriptures of who God is. Why? Because he has revealed himself to us through his word. He has revealed his will, his plan, his desire for humanity through his word. Another objection pops up here. Yeah, but they had the law and the prophets and they crucified Christ. I say, whoa, it's a pretty good objection. So they had all the evidence to point them toward Christ and then Christ comes and they kill him. Well, this is what we call in theology the snake eating itself argument. And it is an argument that we hear again and again today. And you may be thinking to yourself, no, I talk to lots of people all day long. I have never heard them complaining that the Jews had the Bible and then they crucified Christ. I, I don't really hear that. But we do hear some arguments that are similar to this, that have the same tenor or the same tone, that have the same heart behind them. This is the point where an unbeliever will chime in and say that just because Christians have the Bible, it doesn't mean they prove it with their lives. You see, it seems to show some sort of contradiction. At least that's what's seen through the eyes of the unbeliever. So what type of objections do we hear? Well, we hear arguments such as, You're judging me. The Bible says, Thou shalt not judge. I hear this argument all the time. Well, maybe if Christians were a little less judgy, maybe they'd see more unbelievers attend their church. Well, this Christian lives down the road from me and 
He says, I shouldn't do this and shouldn't do this and shouldn't do this. See, right there, he's judging me. He's going against the standard. He's going against his scriptures. The problem in doing that that we should ask them is, so is it wrong to judge? And if they say, well, of course it's wrong to judge. The Bible says, thou shalt not judge. The next question out of the mouth of a believer should be, but you're judging my judgment. See how easily this comes undone. Thou shalt not judge, but you're using judgment to judge what I'm saying. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's because of people not understanding exactly where we're coming from, exactly what the Bible says. Another objection, another argument. Christians don't live any different than unbelievers. Sadly, this is much more true than we possibly could imagine. Think about this for a second, this objection that I know you've heard. I see Christians on Monday, not the same person they are on Sunday. Wow. Wow. And are they justified in their thinking? Well, they could be. If you look at some of the charts, uh, actually in 2010, Christian divorce was actually higher than that of agnostics and atheists. 33% of Christians uh, leave their spouse never to return again because of multiple issues. We're not talking about the issues. We're not talking about that. But what we're talking about is just a comparison between the two. 30% of atheists and agnostics get divorced from their spouse. According to Lifeway Research, 72% of the unchurched believe the church is filled with hypocrites. 72% of the outside world, outside of the doors of the church, believe that we are all a bunch of hypocrites. According to Lifeway Research, while one in four Americans are done with the church, half of all Americans are done with God. Let's tease this out just a little bit. Let's just explore this for just a second. 25% of Americans leave the church on a Sunday and never return. These are people that say, mm, yeah, I was hurt there. These are people that say things like, uh, the pastor's a jerk. Uh, people are not authentic. They don't treat me like they love me. They treat me like they hate me. They have nothing but bad to say. They don't want to build me up. Uh, you know, various reasons. Sometimes they're justified. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes we as the church are jerks to people and we need to repent of that. Um, and it does cause people to leave. And that is sad. But think about that number for just a second. While one in four are done with the church, they leave Sunday morning never to return again. Half of all Americans are done with God. That means they will never pursue a relationship with God again, they say. I'm sick of religion. I'm sick of a God that I cannot live up to his standard. I'm tired of it. I'm done with it. They're known as post-Christian. They say that God plays no role whatsoever in their life. Friends, I have heard these arguments. I've heard arguments from people that are all but done with God that say God has brought me nothing good. I pray and ask God for things. He does nothing good for me, so they're done with him. Because this is what we as the church have given people to latch on to, to hold on to. We have the revealed will, and instead of teaching people who God is, what he desires for their life, and how much he desires to bless them, to encourage them, to correct them, to bring them on the path of righteousness, as much as we have all of this in front of 
of us, we have failed because we've given them some stupid health and wealth gospel, which brings nothing but despair. Because as much money as they put in the collection plate, they're not getting any more in their bank account. As much as they've decided that they want to pray and trust God for the health of their children and of their families, they're still seeing people die, and we have done this. The church at large, we have done this. We have failed these people with the gospel, and we have some serious answering to do. We've been entrusted with the oracles of God the church has today to take God's word to God's people, and we're failing. We're failing. And the evidence is in the numbers. One in four Americans are done with the church. Half of Americans are done with God. They don't see how God, how he has an application for any part of their life. Another demographic to pay close attention to are the millennials. Because 24 of 25 millennials don't have a biblical worldview. This means of all of that generation, they believe that God has nothing to say to certain issues of life. These are kids that were raised up in the church and they've seen it. They've seen the hypocrisy. They say, well, yeah, God may have something to say about how I operate on Sunday morning, but Monday, no. No. What is a biblical worldview? It means that we view the world through the lens of Scripture. We make our decisions based on what God says, what God has commanded, and not according to what the world or the culture is teaching. 24 of 25 millennials do not have this worldview. We failed to teach it to them. We failed. Question. Do these things mean that Christianity is untrue? The fact that uh, the church has failed in many areas, the fact that a lot of times there is quite a bit of hypocrisy, the fact that uh, people have seen this and called us out on it, and they've changed their minds and they've uh, abandoned what faith they said they had, does this mean that Christianity is untrue? Does the believer's unfaithfulness undo somehow God's faithfulness? Well, Romans 3, 3-4 through 4 says this, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. There it is. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. You may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Friends, Christianity would be true even if no one believed it. Christianity would be true even if no one believed it. Your and my faith in Christ on the cross does not make Christianity any more true. Christ hung on the cross, whether or not those listening and myself believe it or not. Even if none of us believed, Christianity would still be true. We should breathe a sigh of relief here. Because as believers, our lives ought to align with God's will. It ought to. But even when our lives don't, that does not undo God's character or the truth of the gospel. Even when we mess up, when we slip, when our lives do not line up, listen, that does not undo the truth of the gospel or God's character. Christianity is true, 
even when we mess up. I remember hearing a statement by a fellow I was talking to a few years ago. He lived down south in the Bible Belt. He's seen a lot of hypocrisy in the church. And an old biker guy he knew told him one time, I live my Jesus. I live my Jesus. Those words stuck with him and he watched him. And he saw what his Jesus was like. He saw a lot of hypocrisy. Friends, this ought to stir us. It ought to rattle us. We ought to be a little convicted here. Because we we fail. Because we mess up. But listen, here's the encouragement. Our faithlessness at times never for a moment undoes God's faithfulness, even in those moments. When you say the wrong thing to your spouse, you're convicted about that. That conviction's a good thing because it leads us to repentance. When you say the wrong thing to someone and, and you hurt them, when you've disobeyed God's command and you feel guilty about that, that's a good thing. That guilt is a good thing. Leads us to repentance. But never for one moment does your or my failure undo God's faithfulness. Even in that moment. Even when you and I mess up royally. Does not undo God's faithfulness. That is a sigh of relief for us. Because the truth of the gospel does not depend on its adherence. Christianity would be true even if no one believed it. That means the people that you're praying for, that you're like, oh great, I've messed up royally. Well, they may be looking for a picture of the gospel in you. But you're not the period at the end of the sentence. You're a comma. You're planting seeds, but you're not forcing them to grow. You're doing what you can, and when you mess up and you accidentally spread some seeds in the rocky soil, don't worry. God's got this. God knows who is going to be saved, and God is going to save that person, and you and I cannot add one ounce of salvation to any of them. We just do what God has called us to do. And when we fail, we repent, just as 1 John 1.9 says. And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. We repent and we believe, even in that moment. And it's, and it's beautiful, because then the outside world can see, yes, She messed up, but she also seeks to change her life, and that's something different than I've seen elsewhere. On the same idea, Romans 3, 3 3-4, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. By no means. Now, what is meant by no means? Exactly what is said. There's no way you or I can undo God's faithfulness. No way. God is sovereign. And he's in control. Second point of today's message, the fact of Christian inconsistency proves the world's need for Christ. Now, you and I love things to be consistent. We love when we buy a coffee from a particular place for the next time we go and get a coffee from that place for it to taste exactly the same as it did last time. We love consistency. Now, can you imagine going to a restaurant and ordering a plate of food saying this is absolutely delicious? 
and the next time going and ordering that same exact plate. And it's good, but it tastes a lot different than it did last time. And then the next time you go, you order that plate, and it tastes even different from those other times. No one likes that because we like consistency. We like things that we can trust. We like when we go to the restaurant and I order the special that I had two weeks ago. It tastes exactly the same, just as good as it did last time. We love that. We love consistency. Your and my life as Christians need to be consistent. But when they are not consistent, all that does is proves the world's need for Christ. Romans 3 verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The fact of Christian inconsistency only proves the world's need for Christ. Many believe the Christian has a pass on how to live so they can live however they please apart from the teachings of Scripture. Like now we have some sort of golden star or some sort of a bulletproof jacket. Well, I don't need to worry about it now. Not true. Not true. And sadly, this is believed by both believers and unbelievers that Christians simply have a pass. So, yes, they believe something differently than the rest of the world does, but they live exactly the same. Because they have this past, because they have this bulletproof vest now, because they have the Bible. And largely the reason this is believed is because of pray the prayer mentality evangelism. Well, if you just pray and accept Jesus into your heart, if you would just pray this prayer with me, sit down and pray this prayer with me. If you would just pray this prayer with me, all things would be different. You just pray this prayer with me. Your life will be changed. Your eternal destination will be changed. And then we leave them there. Where does this come from? It comes from a soft gospel taught by soft Christians. That's the only, only way that we can look at this. The pray the prayer evangelism only comes from a soft gospel taught by soft Christians. That God has no expectation for your life apart from praying this prayer. And that is sad. And the question we ought to ask ourselves, is this what Christ died for? Do you think Christ died because the Jews were mad that he was trying to ask people to pray a prayer? I think Christ died because the Jews were upset because Christ asked people if he could live in their hearts? No. Because if that's true, if Christ's death on the cross was simply so we could ask him into our heart, simply so we could pray a prayer, then what have we been redeemed from? What about the war? What about the blood? What about his battle against Satan and sin and the grave? What does all that mean if all we need to do is pray the prayer? What have we been redeemed from? 
If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, to his glory, to his doxa, to his being revealed, to his majesty. Our unrighteousness against the backdrop of God's righteousness makes us come face to face with the glory of the gospel. Don't miss this. Our unrighteousness against the backdrop of God's righteousness. It makes us come face to face with the glory of the gospel. It's as if we're in a dark room and someone turns on the light. It hurts your eyes a little bit. It's because of the contrast. Because you've, you've compared two things, the darkness to the light. When something is hot and your hand is burned, you put something cold on it. It's the contrast. It's the contrast of the moment. Our unrighteousness against the backdrop of God's righteousness makes us come face to face with the glory of what? Of the gospel. What is that? What is that glory? What's this fact here? The three nails held the Savior upon a cross. That the sky went dark. That he declared once all things were fulfilled, it is finished. When on that day he held the weight of sin on his shoulders, God the Father turned his face away and poured out the cup of wrath deserved by you and I on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the most beautiful revealing of God's glory we could ever imagine. And that door has been swung open for you and I not to pray the prayer, but to know God as Father. So yes, when we ask Christ to live in our hearts, we are doing a spiritual transaction that is important, but we can never leave it at surface level. We can never leave it at simply words because these words are meant to be driven very, very deep. I ask you this morning, does the gospel still affect you where you are? What parts of your life have you shielded from the gospel's power? Because friends, the gospel is meant to touch every part of our lives and be encouraged. Be encouraged here this morning because even when we mess up, even when we mess up, it does not take one ounce, not one thread of power away from this message. It is power and will continue to be the power of God for salvation for all who believe. <laughs>